Good morning. The reading for today is taken from the book of Galatians, uh, beginning at chapter 3, verse 26, and moving along to chapter 4, verse 7. You may follow along uh, on page 6 of the bulletin. So in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that As long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental principles of the world. But when the the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son... God has made you also an heir. It is not a misprint. Uh, Yeah, we actually did look at this passage last week and its broad themes of being brought into the family of God, loved as children of God, adopted in Christ. We looked at those main themes, but today what we're going to do is take the same passage but focus on one powerful, fascinating statement that Paul made towards the beginning of this passage, found in verse 28. Let me read it again for you. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we pray your blessing upon this time. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon our ears, our minds, our hearts, upon us. Because we need your help to get this right, to hear this right, to live this right. We pray that you would do that for the honor of Jesus, but also for our good. So please come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you watch very much network TV, or if you've been watching lately, Or if you did in the past, of course, there's always some great shows. You've got your cop shows, your detective shows, your hospital-slash-law-office drama shows, romance, reality shows, singing contest shows, all different kinds of shows. One thing, though, lately that's been standing out to me as interesting is how many top-rated TV shows are about family life, specifically 
about the brokenness and just the craziness of families. You got modern family, house of pain, parenthood, everybody loves Raymond. You know, these days, gone are the days of the Brady's and the Huxtables. When you spend time with the Pritchetts, the Paynes, the Barones, even the Bundys and the Simpsons, you watch these things and to your delight and maybe even to your surprise, you start to feel like they're a family just like yours. And I think that's part of the point. Where you're watching them and you say to yourself, wow, uh, they're pretty screwed up, sometimes weird, sometimes unlikable but very real and very, very familiar. Yup, that's the way it is with my folks. And that's an honesty, I think, that's really refreshing and actually welcomed. I mean, even from the Christian perspective, especially when we hear the Bible tell us that the church community is to be like a family, and most certainly it is a flawed family. A family which in many ways is no different, much different from your own. Screwed up, sometimes weird, sometimes unlikable, always messy, but still family. But the Bible also tells us that the church is, yes, a family, but a radically new and different family as well. The church is to be a family that's actually in many ways unfamiliar in its relationships, in its dynamic, in its purpose, in its goals, in its manner, one to another. And we see this in today's passage in the way that it depicts the community of faith as a family in which the barriers that normally divide us as human beings in our relationships, that those barriers are supernaturally broken down in Jesus. You might have noticed Paul focuses on three such barriers. The race and culture barrier, there is neither Jew nor Greek. The class barrier, there is neither slave nor free. The Roman and Jewish world categorized people not only with respect to their wealth, but also with what you might call social power, your rank, your education, your family background. This isn't just talking about slaves and freed persons. This is talking about class. And of course, the gender barrier. There is no male and female. These divisions totally polarize the ancient world in which Paul was speaking. We have this, we hear this in an ancient prayer that we've dug up not me personally, historians, of course, in the first century, this old Jewish benediction, almost a prayer that sounded something like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has made me not a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Guess the gender of the author of the prayer, of course. 
And of course, these issues still polarize society even today. But isn't it true that these divisions sometimes have the biggest source of division, become the biggest source of division, have the greatest power and disintegrating effect, unfortunately, in the life of the church? Not just out there, as it were, but right in here, in the family of faith. And this is Paul's primary concern. See, he's talking about relationships in God's family. For among those who have been brought in as adopted children and who now are to relate one to another as brother and as sister. People who are reconciled to each other by the grace of God. You are all one, Paul says. You are all one in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus, God adopts me into his family by his grace, not by my performance and certainly not by my natural profile, not because I'm a Korean American or a dude or an overeducated middle, upper middle class pastor. It's by God's grace. You are all one in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus, I share more in common about ultimate things in life with someone who knows God as their father and Jesus as their savior and elder brother than with others of my very own same culture, gender, and social standing. You are all one in Christ Jesus because in Christ Jesus, as John Stott puts it, we are equal, equal in our need of salvation because we're sinners, equal in our inability to earn or deserve that salvation, and equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ as a gift. You are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says. But what does that mean? What does this barrier-breaking family oneness mean? really look like? Can we explore that? And I think we can mine up from this passage three things. That family oneness means sharing peer relationships. It means sharing complementary relationships. And it means sharing intimate relationships. Family oneness means sharing peer relationships. You know, Paul here goes out of his way to reassure the Galatians that everyone in Christ shares exactly the same status and standing before God that we are all peers in Christ. Remember in the ancient world that only sons, males, boys received the family inheritance. Which is exactly why it's so significant that Paul says in verse 26, So in Christ Jesus, you, men and women, boys and girls, are all sons of God through faith. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. He's making a point about a shared and common status that you have before God because of Jesus That you all share the status of the firstborn son. That everybody who is adopted by the grace of God into God's family is an heir. 
has a right to the inheritance, the spiritual inheritance of God in Christ. So the Jewish Christian is an heir of God. And the Greek Christian is an heir. And the Salvadorian Christian is an heir. And the Caucasian American Christian is an heir. And the male Christian and the female Christian are both heirs. And the rich and the poor, the more educated, the less educated, they are all commonly together heirs of God. Which means practically, friends, that no one in God's family should be treated as superior or as inferior. That we not be a community where there's looking down on other people because of their race or their culture. You know, the way that we might quietly, maybe even just to ourselves, criticize the way you people or those people do things, even in the community of faith. The way a church community often can exclude people unintentionally, not as a a formal program or a way of pushing people out, but simply because of obliviousness to how thick a culture in the church might be and how uninviting it can be to people that are outside of that majority setting. There's no looking down on other people because of their gender. Whether if it's men who look at women as less gifted or less capable, maybe because they actually deep down feel threatened by women. Historically, the church has been guilty of this in many ways, can still be, often is. Or it might be women who simply think that guys are just stupid. A less evolved version or form of the human race, right? Now, that's probably a pretty accurate assessment of guys. No, I'm kidding. But isn't that sometimes deep within our minds and our hearts? Maybe it's the form of suspicion towards people of the opposite gender. An inherent lack of trust. And I understand sometimes that's because of wounds and incidents that have happened in the past. There's mercy there. We understand. But the ways in which we are divided even by gender. There's no looking down on people because of their social class. Maybe in the way in which as you're talking with someone, you maybe ask them what they do for work and you kind of immediately judge them. Either you're impressed by them or you kind of just pass on, not really impressed at all because of what they do for a living. Or maybe it's treating members of the church, the community who have fewer material resources as if they have no gifts, no abilities, nothing to contribute to the church at large or especially to you personally. Well, you're basically saying to folks, you know, you belong to the outreach department of this church, but not the fellowship and community department and certainly not the counseling department when it comes to me needing your counsel. Do we do that? Sometimes we can believe that people who have less materially have less to give spiritually. And on the flip side of the same coin, there is, of course, the possibility of scorning those who are more affluent than us. You know, for all the interesting correctives and dialogues spurred on by the Occupy movement, 
I think one of the great flaws, and you hear it echoed throughout our public discourse, is the way in which the movement has bred scorn and resentment towards the wealthy. Where uh, people that simply have more, regardless of how they handle it, it, manage it, or give it away, are hated simply for being who they are and simply for having what they have. Oneness, of course, means that people who have more material possessions or social power wouldn't be shunned in the community or made to feel embarrassed or apologetic for what very well may be their God-given wealth as a blessing from Him. If we are in Christ, we are peers, Paul says. We are siblings, we are sons, we are heirs of the Father. Secondly, family oneness means that we share complementary relationships. Not just that we're peers having no regard in terms of superiority or inferiority uh, towards other people, but also having complementary relationships. Listen, oneness does not mean sameness. Paul is telling us that because of the gospel, our differences shouldn't have the same power to divide us in the way that it normally does. But this doesn't mean that the gospel erases our social differences either. In fact, if you're reading through the book of Galatians, you understand Paul can't be saying that because the whole point of his letter is that he is opposing false teachers who are actually doing exactly that, forcing Gentile, non-Jewish Christians to become more like Jewish Christians in their ceremonies, rituals, and religion. So in Galatians 2.14, Paul exclaims, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Sometimes we do think, don't we, that equality means equivalence. So, for example, Paul is not telling us to be, quote unquote, colorblind, ignoring people's ethnicity as if Christians are supposed to say to, say, a black brother or sister, look, I didn't even realize you were black. Which is not only dishonest, it's dishonoring to the way that that person was uniquely created by God and the way that that person uniquely experiences life. Rather, gospel oneness, not sameness, means fitting together, fitting together like different pieces of a puzzle. Uh, functioning together like different parts of the human body. Grab your metaphor. Different things that come together harmoniously and fill out a whole. Where our differences are actually interlocking, complementary parts, which means we need each other. We need each other. That we experience more of the fullness of God. We actually see more of Scripture and the Gospel when we grow together with people of different cultural backgrounds in the same community. We do. That whether poor and rich or everyone in between, when we are together in fellowship, 
There's more that we experience together about what faith in, in God and the life of faith and walking together really means and what it looks like. Where both men and women are able to be esteemed as commonly made in the image of God. In other words, where we need both unique differences, male and female, together fully expressed in the community for the full picture of the image of God. Men and women teaching, exhorting, encouraging, contributing to the life of the community. The point isn't that it doesn't mean that men and women fulfill identical roles in the church, however. For example, some of you may know the teaching, the belief that the Bible actually may be teaching, the Bible does teach, that in every aspect of community life, that all unordained women can do everything that all unordained men are able to do, fully using their gifts and abilities and love and care and time and energy. And yet the Bible seems to restrict the one office, the one role of pastor and elder in the church, the authoritative teaching function to that of men. And I know this is not an easy thing for a lot of us to hear. Because a lot of people have been wounded. That maybe this is a source of anger for you towards churches or people who, based on unbiblical traditions, have actually marginalized women in harmful ways or treated them as uh, treated you, perhaps, or someone you care about as a second class citizen in the body of Christ. And there is a real danger. Based upon this passage, we need to be able to say that we not amputate half the body of Christ from the body of Christ. And yet we're also not saying that men and women are identical in every way. We don't have the time to get into all the details. I'm happy to talk about it some more for sure. But what is the reason, perhaps, that God might have instituted things in this sort of way? We know what it is not, and it is not because a lack of gifts or abilities in women. That is definitely not the case. I could even point to my wife, Paula, who is a designer and a project manager by training, who most certainly is a better manager than I am with respect to that angle of leadership gifts. She makes decisions more clearly, more timely than I do. But the Bible distinguishes having gifts from the roles in which these gifts function. And sometimes we equate the two. There's no doubting, no questioning that men and women both together have incredible gifts of leadership, of stewardship, of management, of decision making, of teaching, of counseling, of care, of shepherding. And yet there's some mysterious way in which it's not completely clear to us in which God makes this distinction to have complementary roles in the life of the church in leadership. One clue that we have actually is the way in which the apostle talks about the church as the family of God. And so just like husbands and dads are called to exercise unique leadership Be clear, humble, self-sacrificing, loving, chief-repenting leadership in the family, in the same way in the family of faith, that men, brothers, are called to humbly exercise that 
laying down my life type of leadership as well. It's not an easy thing. And we don't understand it all. And so we're happy to talk through it and work through it together. Here's a helpful quote that I found in what actually is a very helpful book on the topic if you want to look it up. It's just come out recently, written by Kathy Keller, who is a theologically trained woman who's also the wife of a pastor in New York and a director of a ministry of a megachurch in New York. It's a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And I'll just leave you with this thought that she puts here. Jesus is the reason that you can trust God's justice is behind your assigned gender role. Whether you're a man who would rather not take leadership or assume risk, or a woman who wishes she could. It takes both men and women living out of their gender roles in the safety of home and church to reveal to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. And in that last statement, that's where we see a little bit of this idea of complementary parts together, imaging forth different unique aspects of the face of God and the personality of Christ. So whether if it's men and women, or if it's rich or poor, or educated, uneducated, or if it's black or white, or Asian or Latino, or anything in between, we need each other complementary relationships, oneness that doesn't deny our differences, but rather brings them together in harmonious oneness. Thirdly and lastly, family oneness means sharing intimate relationships. Intimate relationships. Becoming a child of God means experiencing a new intimacy with God as your father. We talked about this last week. Take a look at the sermon or listen to it online. In verse 5, we're told that God welcomes sinners just like a new parent adopts an orphan. In verse 6, we're told that we can speak to God with intimacy and familiarity, even calling out to Him, Daddy, Dad, rather than just Creator or Judge. There's intimacy here. And the Father delights in His children, cares for His children, provides for His children. And the question implied by Paul here is this. If this is what God is like, will its family be like its Father? If He extends Himself to His kids with such intimacy and joy, will those kids also extend themselves likewise to one another with intimacy Enjoy. Which means being neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female, but being one doesn't just mean coexisting in the same room or in the same church. Look, if you were in a family, or maybe you are in such a family, you live under one roof, and family members, mother, father, siblings, just kind of do their own thing, eat meals separately, never talk to each other, never communicate, don't even barely know anything about what's going on in each other's lives, and someone were to ask you, well, tell me about your family, and you told them this, wouldn't they conclude there's something wrong here, something dysfunctional? Oneness, friends, means pursuing people personally. Actually opening and welcoming people, not just into the community, but into your own lives. Into your kitchens, into your living rooms, into your mental and emotional space, carrying them in your heart. 
having real affection and warmth to your friends across cultural and racial lines. Yes, across gender lines, being wise and finding ways to do that. Across social barriers. Where we're learning to treat people as family. Where we say, if you're in Christ, you're my brother. And we mean that word not just as a throwaway Christian term, but we mean it. You are my brother. You are my sister. And where we're treating people affectionately as people and not simply as objects. Whether if that's seeing a person in need in the neighborhood who might actually be a brother or sister in Jesus, but treating them as just an object of your time or your service or your care. Or if it means treating a person of the opposite gender as an object, simply seeing them as a potential date or spouse before you see them as a true brother and sister in Christ. Oneness means inviting people intimately, personally into our lives and pursuing people proactively with some intentionality where we are taking steps to create more deep and personal friendships with people of different cultural backgrounds than myself. Where we're forging friendships, space in our lives for people of the opposite gender in appropriate ways. Where we are intentionally seeking relationships with people in the church and in the neighborhood that come from very different social backgrounds from ourselves. And we do this intentionally. And even as a church, for example, being a church who is looking for ways that we have different kinds of neighbors here in this neighborhood that are present in the neighborhood, but underrepresented in our church community. For example, working class neighbors. And caring to draw people in. Again, not treating people as objects, but authentically inviting them into your life. And again, not just to the church community as a whole, but into your life. Family. Brother. Sister. All right, we're closing up. Some of us today may need to repent of our sexism, racism, classism. Even if it's in sort of residual, quiet, barely detectable form, maybe you have a sophisticated way, as I see it in my own heart, a sophisticated way of couching it in less offensive terms. But if you dig down deep, it is what it is, sexism, racism, and classism. Looking down on other people and erecting barriers between yourself and others. Would we know that the basis for the unity and oneness that we're being invited to, however is not simply human will or activity or good strategies. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which invites us commonly as sinners, humbly and desperately in need of the grace of God. None of us have earned our way into this family. All of us are undeserving. All of us had to be chased down and adopted by the choice and the will and the gracious favor of God. If that's your identity, it should bring you to your knees in humility and give you a humble basis upon which you can start to love and extend yourself across these 
barriers. And consider that even though Paul is talking primarily about the family of faith, the relationships that we have in this space here as a church and churches at large, you understand if you start to take it seriously, if we start to live it seriously in this place, amongst ourselves, in our relationships, will it not also start to spill over into the neighborhood? Will it not also start to transform relationships in what you might call broader society? Because I've learned here how to care, how to love, how to work across barriers, how to heal, how to reconcile with people of other racial backgrounds, of other genders, of other class backgrounds. So the question is this, will the family be like its father? The family be like its father. You are all one in Christ. You are all sons in Christ. You are all one. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we're praying for your help. We're praying for your wisdom. We're praying for... Uh, your continuing instruction. But we're praying for your spirit to help us to respond, to follow, to obey. So we're giving ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing a song.